I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 3. The emphasis in Acts chapters 3 and 4 is on the name of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says, In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. In verse 16, Peter says, it's, in, it's on the basis of faith in His name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. In chapter 4, verse 7, the religious leaders say, In what name have you done this? And Peter says in verse 10, By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Verse 12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 17 at the end, the religious leaders say, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. Verse 18, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 30, the church prays that the Lord would work through the name of Thy holy servant, Jesus. What's in a name? Obviously, a name is more than just identification. A name encompasses all that a person is. When I say a person's name to you, you think of all that they are. When I say Greg Leet, you don't say, that's a boring name. Only eight letters and they had to use one of them three times. No, if, if you know Greg, I say his name, you think of all that he is. But a name also has to do with authority. If I say to you, you can use my name, your question is, is your name worth something? Or if, my, if I write you a check and sign my name, you want to know, does my name have authority down at the bank? When we say the name of Jesus, it evokes all that He is and represents His authority. And when we're talking about all that Jesus is, we're talking about a mouthful. Whatever you think of when I say the name Jesus is an understatement. Because Paul said in Philippians 2.9, Jesus has the name which is above every name. And when we talk about authority, Jesus' authority is absolute. Jesus said in Matthew 28.18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The emphasis in this passage is on the name of Jesus because it was always on the lips of the early church, indicating their reliance on His person and His power. Now this morning we're going to look in chapter 3 at verses 1 all the way into chapter 4. And here we're going to see an event that took place. And there are four stages to this event. Each one reveals something about the name of Jesus. First, is the name of Jesus brings restoration. And that's in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Peter and John were often together in Scripture. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, we're told that they were partners in a fishing business. Along with John's brother James, they were the inner circle of the disciples. In Luke 22.8, they are the two disciples that Jesus sent to prepare the Passover meal. John chapter 18 and verse 15 tells us that they were the only two disciples who went to the house of the high priest after Jesus' arrest. 
John chapter 20 and verse 2 tells us they are the two who ran to see the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 14, we're told that the early apostles sent these two to Samaria. And here we find it's Peter and John who are on their way to the temple. Now, believers at this point in time were still attached to the temple. Later in the book of Hebrews, these same early Christians were exhorted to leave the temple because it was no longer the significant place where God met with man. And still later, they would understand, as Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, that they themselves are the temple of God. But for now, they are still tied to the temple. And that underscores the fact that the book of Acts is a transitional book. You can't take patterns out of the book of Acts and necessarily say that applies to today. Because here in Acts chapter 3, we have a church made up entirely of Jewish believers. They are in transition to what the church would ultimately be, and that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, why are they going to the temple? Well, verse 1 says they're going there to pray. It was the ninth hour, 3 p.m. That was the hour of prayer. It was also the time of the evening sacrifice, a time when the temple would be very busy because people would be coming there. It also was a time that held special significance for Christians because 3 p.m., the ninth hour, was the hour when Jesus breathed His last on the cross. And so... Peter and John are going up to the temple. It's 3 p.m. Verse 2 says, And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now, we're not told how old this man was, but we do know that he had been lame from birth. Humanly speaking, his case was hopeless. The best his friends could do for him was to carry him to the temple each day so that he could beg alms. And his regular spot, we're told, was by the beautiful gate. And when you hear the word gate, don't think of a little garden gate. This is a huge gate, held volumes of people. Josephus says it was made of Corinthian brass and was so large it took 20 men to close it. There were three primary spots to beg in Israel. One was outside the house of a rich man. That's the one Lazarus chose in Luke chapter 16. The second was along a busy highway. That's the one blind Bartimaeus chose in Mark chapter 10 just outside the city of Jericho. The third prime spot was the temple. And of the three, the temple was probably the best because the crowds came every day. And the people came with a mentality that was much more generous. They were coming to the temple to try to impress God with how pious they were. And one of the ways they could impress God was by giving alms to the poor, and so he was set out, up right outside the gate asking for his alms. The other good thing about the temple is that for a beggar, it had good hours. Because there were certain times of the day when the action was heavy. In fact, if you look at this passage, this fellow didn't come early in the morning and sit there begging all day. 
Verse 1 says it was 3 p.m. Verse 2 says he was still being carried along. So it's 3 p.m. and he's just getting to work because he knows that this is prime time. So he's coming there to beg during this hour of prayer. This guy is a savvy beggar. He's working the times when he knows he can make the most money. And then verse 3 says, And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He hadn't even gotten to his spot yet. He was just arriving. He sees Peter and John and he asks them for alms. Now why did he ask Peter and John? I'm sure they didn't look like they were well-to-do. Why did he ask Peter and John? The only answer I can offer is because it was God's timing. Now, this guy had been sitting by the beautiful gate most of his life, which tells me that he was sitting there when Jesus came and went from the temple. I think we can be fairly certain that Jesus walked by him on occasion. Why didn't Jesus heal him? Because it wasn't God's timing. But you see, this day is God's time. And what's interesting about it is that Peter and John are on the move. They're walking. John chapter 20 tells us John was faster than Peter. So I don't know how they walked together. Maybe John got ahead and then Peter said slow down and then they were kind of going fast and slowing down. They were hard to figure their miles per hour. But they're on the move. This beggar is also on the move. He is being carried along. And by coincidence, they both arrive at the beautiful gate at the very same moment. And the Bible says, just when Peter and John were about to go through the gate, this lame man saw them and said, there's my first donor of the day. And he asked them for alms. And verse 4 says, And Peter along with John fixed his gaze upon him. Now I like that. Peter stopped and he gave this man his full attention. Peter could have said, I'm a big name preacher. 3,000 people just got saved at my first sermon. I don't have time for poor beggars. But you see, the same Spirit of God who gave him the boldness to stand up in front of that crowd on the day of Pentecost gave him the sensitivity to care about this poor man. In chapter 2, we see Peter fishing with a net. At the beginning of chapter 3, we see Peter fishing with a pole. This is an illustration of chapter 2, verse 47, where it says God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He calls out to Peter and John. They stop, give him their whole attention, and then notice the end of verse 4. They said to him, look at us. Now this fellow was apparently busy. Apparently he asked them for alms, and then he was busy recruiting other donors. He's kind of like one of those guys that mans the booth at the fair. You know, he's calling out to everybody to come over. So he's busy with somebody else. Peter looks at him and says, look at me. Now, that had to be unusual. This guy spent all his time trying to get everybody else's attention. Here's somebody who wanted his attention. And so it says, verse 5, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. 
He must have thought, my ship has come in. Here's somebody who wants my attention. He's probably going to unload some riches on me. Verse 6, But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Peter doesn't have what he's asking for, money, but that's not really what he needs anyway. What he needs, money can't buy. He needs healing for his body and salvation for his soul. And so Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And then I like verse 7. It says, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. Peter was always compulsive. So he says to this guy, walk, and then he can't wait for the guy to do it. So he grabs him and yanks him up. And verse 7 continues and says, And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened, and with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter pulls him up, and as he's coming up, he's healed. And he walks and leaps and praises God. This is really a double miracle. Because not only is his body immediately healed, but he is instantaneously taught how to walk. You ever sit around for a week and then try to walk? You can't do it very well. This guy's been sitting all his life. He's suddenly healed. Peter pulls him up and he jumps up and he's running around, jumping and praising God. He's got balance. He's got equilibrium. Double miracle. So during the evening offering, pretty solemn time, during the hour of prayer with people praying all over the temple, you got this guy bounding all over the place praising God. He's creating quite a scene. And verse 9 says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Nobody needed to tell them that a miracle had taken place because they knew this fellow. They passed by him all the time. They knew that's the lame beggar that sits out by the beautiful gate. They figured he would sit there until he died. Now they see him running through the temple like a hurdler. And it says they're standing in wonder and amazement. You know, this man is an illustration of what salvation is like first thing we know about him is that he was born lame. So is each one of us. We are unable to walk in a way that pleases God. Adam fell and we inherited that and we are born spiritually lame. Second thing we know about him is that he was outside the temple. So are we. Separated from God. Didn't matter that he was close, right by the gate. He was still outside the temple. Third thing we know about him, he didn't know what he really needed. He was asking for money. That's not what he needed. Most people who are spiritually lame don't really know what they need. And they spend all their lives seeking things that never satisfy. Fourth thing, everything he needed he found in Jesus. 
the name of Jesus immediately made him whole. And the fifth thing, he gave evidence of what God had done. In verse 8, it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. He was also publicly identifying with the apostles because verse 11 says he was clinging to them. Now that he could stand, there was no question about where he stood. You know, we live in a world where people are sitting outside the gate of God, spiritually lame, seeking everything but the thing that they need. And we need to go to those people with the name of Jesus, all that He is and all that He can do. The name of Jesus brings restoration. Second thing we learn about the name of Jesus here is that the name of Jesus brings conviction in verses 11 to 16. Verse 11 says, And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Now Peter and John had gone into the temple. We know now that they've come back out through the beautiful gate because they're out now on the eastern porch, which is called the porch of Solomon. And the healing of this lame man has created quite a crowd. Verse 12 says, But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we had made him walk? Peter's not one to pass up an opportunity. So he addresses the crowd. And he does so by asking them two questions, each of which has a mild rebuke. First question is, why do you marvel at this? You're the men of Israel. You have a miracle-working God. He's the God who brought the plagues on Egypt. He's the God who divided the Red Sea. He's the God who worked through prophets like Elijah to raise the dead. Why should you be amazed? And then his second question is, why are you looking at us as if we did it? We're just a couple fishermen from Galilee. We don't have the power to do this. And obviously the next question is, well then how did it happen? And that's what Peter answers down in verse 16. He says, on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus that has strengthened this man. But before Peter gets to that answer, he gives a few more names for Jesus. Notice what he calls Jesus in verse 13. He calls Him His servant, God's servant. In verse 14, He calls Him the Holy One. In verse 14 again, he calls him the righteous one. In verse 15, he calls him the prince of life. Now, why does Peter use those names? Well, he uses those names because he wants to bring conviction on the people. Notice verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Now notice there are a series of paradoxes here, four of them. Number one, at the beginning of verse 13, he says, you disowned God's servant, but God glorified him. You disowned him, God glorified him. Second paradox is at the end of verse 13, he says, Pilate 
this Gentile sinful ruler wanted to release him, but you, the men of Israel, delivered him up. Third paradox is in verse 14. You chose to have a murderer released to you rather than the holy and righteous one. And then the fourth paradox is in verse 15. You put to death the prince of life. God raised him from the dead. Now, Peter's not holding back any punches here. He says, you delivered him up. You rejected him. You disowned him. You put him to death. And then he closes verse 15 with that statement. God raised him from the dead and he wants to bring some confirmation to that. And so he brings two kinds of evidence to that. First of all, he says at the end of verse 15, to which we are witnesses. Peter says, we witness the resurrection. And then he gives a second validation to that, and that is, he says, you're also witnesses. Verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. He says, you all know this man. You can see that he's been healed. It's the name of Jesus that healed him. Can a dead man heal a lame man? No. So if it's the name of Jesus that healed him, then what does that mean? Jesus is alive. He says, we are witnesses, you are witnesses. So Peter says, He's the one you delivered up, rejected, disowned, and put to death. He's the one that God raised from the dead and glorified. This man is proof of it. Now, that would be pretty convicting. Psychologists today say that the worst thing you can do to a person is heap guilt on them. In fact, we spend thousands of dollars in this country to have people tell us that it's somebody else's fault. Peter didn't buy into that. Peter says, you're guilty. The name of Jesus brings conviction. Third thing we know about the name of Jesus is that the name of Jesus brings salvation. Look at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. The Old Testament law talks about two kinds of sin. There's deliberate sin and there's sin that's done in ignorance. Peter says, you acted in ignorance. You say, well, wait a minute. These people had the Old Testament Scriptures, they had Jesus in their midst, they heard His words, they saw His miracles, they still rejected Him. How can you say that that was an act of ignorance? Well, I think Peter says so because echoing in his ears are the words that he heard when he stood by the cross. Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. They didn't know that he was the Son of God. In fact, Paul would later say, somewhere, oh, 1 Corinthians 2.8, For if the rulers of this age had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so, Peter says to them, you acted in ignorance. 
There's a little glimmer of encouragement there. And then he adds a little more encouragement in verse 18. He says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He says, You put to death God's servant, but you didn't mess up God's plan. Because in God's plan all along were the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter says, here's your crime. You killed the prince of life. But God raised him up against, again, the evidence, this man standing right in front of you. Here's the nature of your sin, ignorance. And then Peter says, let me let you in on the plan of God. You know what God wants to do? God wants to pardon you. Verse 19, repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away. What's he telling them to do? Repent. We've talked about that word recently. It means more than feeling sorry for your sins. It's more than remorse. It's more than regret. Judas felt all those things and never repented. It's like the little girl in Sunday school class said, repentance means feeling sorry enough to quit. It means to change your mind and to change your purpose about yourself, about your sin, about Jesus. Repent, and then he says, return. Turn from your sin to the Lord. That's conversion. It's doing a 180. It's turning away from my sin and embracing the Lord Jesus. And Peter says, when that happens, or when you do that, three things will happen. First of all, he says, you'll have forgiveness. Your sins will be wiped away. doesn't say your sins will be reduced. doesn't say your sins will be ignored. doesn't say you can work out a plea bargain with God. He says your sins will be wiped away. Forgiveness. Second thing he promises is blessing. Verse 19, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's just said you're guilty. You killed the Messiah. They have to be sensing that out of heaven is going to come judgment any second. And he says if you will repent and turn to the Lord, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. What a promise. Forgiveness, blessing. And then he makes a third promise. He says Jesus will return and set up His kingdom. Verse 20, And that He may send Jesus the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. You say, is He promising that if they repent that Jesus will come back and set up His kingdom? That's what He's promising. Now you have to understand here that He's talking to the Jews. He addresses them in verse 12 as men of Israel. And Peter is actually calling here for national repentance. The accusation in verse 17 is that you and your rulers put to death your Messiah. So Peter is saying if you repent... Jesus will come back and set up His kingdom. Now, they didn't repent, and God knew they wouldn't repent. But that's the offer. And what's interesting is that that offer still stands. And did you know that in a future day, before Jesus comes back to set up His kingdom, there will be a national repentance in Israel. It will happen during the tribulation period just prior to the kingdom. And so this promise still stands. And then Peter confirms it by quoting Deuteronomy 18. 
He says, verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. He's already said the prophet spoke about Jesus. Now he quotes Moses. And he says, Moses talked about a prophet. You would heed everything he says, and if you didn't heed, you would be destroyed. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 24 and says, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. All the prophets spoke about these days. What days? The days that the Messiah would be on the earth. And Peter says, you have lived during those days. Look at verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with His Father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You are the sons of the prophets. You're the ones that they were writing for. And you are the sons of the covenant. You are living in the times when God will bless all the nations. And so he says in verse 26, For you first, God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The blessing is intended for you first. Who? Israel. They're always first. It's always the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's God's chronology. And so he says the blessing comes to you first. But what's exciting to me in verse 26 is that even though he's talking about national repentance and national blessing, he makes the responsibility an individual one. He says in verse 26, by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. It's a call to national repentance. Where does it start? It starts with an individual repenting and returning to the Lord. Fourth thing we learn about the name of Jesus here is that the name of Jesus brings persecution. And that's in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Notice verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed. These are the religious leaders. They are greatly disturbed. What are they bothered about? Verse 2. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What were they disturbed about? They were disturbed about the name of Jesus. And verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. We're going to take a closer look at those verses next time, but what I want you to see this morning is that the name of Jesus brings persecution. And yet that persecution can't stop the power of His name. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There were 3,000 saved in chapter 2. Now he says there are 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children, which would probably put the number at over 20,000 people in the church. How many were saved on this occasion? We're not told. He simply says, many believed, probably several thousand. And so the name of Jesus brings restoration, conviction, salvation, and persecution. In closing, let me just point out several practical lessons that we learn from this passage. Number one, it tells us that we have a patient God. God sent John the Baptist to the people of Israel 
They rejected Him. God sent His Son to the people of Israel. They not only rejected Him, they crucified Him. I think if it were you or I, we would at that point draw a line and say, that's all she wrote. But not God. God here sends His apostles into the streets of Jerusalem and says, if you'll repent and return refreshing will come from the Lord and God will wipe away your sins. What a promise. What patience God has. Second lesson. True witnessing involves good news and bad news. The bad news is sin and guilt. The good news is salvation through faith in Christ. You're not doing anyone any favors by protecting them from guilt. Because guilt is a necessary prerequisite to salvation. In fact, if you're trying to protect people from guilt, you're actually working against what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. Because Jesus said of Him in John 16, 8, that the Spirit's work was to convict the world concerning sin. Third lesson. The way to reach the masses is by reaching the individual. Peter and John reached out to one individual on this occasion. The result was that thousands of people came to the Lord. Fourth lesson. The most convincing evidence for the truth is a changed life. The whole time Peter was preaching, this healed lame man was standing next to him. Now, you've got to remember, he's been sitting all his life. So I imagine with, with his legs restored, he's probably running in place and, and, you know, just checking out those legs and moving all the time. And, and right next to Peter while he's preaching is Exhibit A, a changed life. The Methodist evangelist Samuel Chadwick used to pray for a Lazarus. He said, every time I went on an evangelistic crusade to a new town, I would ask God for a Lazarus. What he meant was somebody who had, who had spiritually been in the tomb so long, he stunk. He said, I wanted somebody, I wanted the worst sinner in the city to come to the Lord so he would be exhibit A to everyone else and it would allow a breakthrough of the gospel. And over and over again, he said that God answered his prayer. The most effective witness is a changed life. Fifth lesson. Whenever God blesses, Satan always shows up to silence the witness. And don't miss this. Many times, Satan uses religious people to do his work. So if you're going to accomplish something for God, expect opposition and don't let them stop you. Sixth and final lesson, there is still power in the name of Jesus. Not some magical formula. It's not if I say those words, something magically hocus-pocus happens. But there's power in the name of Jesus. Reliance on His person and His power to work through us to accomplish His goals. Let's take those lessons today and be the people God has called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this example of a man whose life was changed by the power of the Lord Jesus. 
who affected thousands of people. And Father, as we examine our hearts today, we would just make our prayer to You be, Lord, change me too. Heal me. Restore me. Make me the person You want me to be. Father, that my life may impact the world around me. And Father, we'll be careful in all of that to give You the glory. And we count it a privilege to pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.